0: right state university's number one stop for film talk and classic rock it's reels and riffs and now here's your host fresh from the master control studio at whio
1: and the only random in radio It's Random Allen. Welcome to Reels and Rips with Random Allen. One show where jokes about the host's name are half the fun. The other half are jokes about Florida. I've got a big show for you tonight, folks. And a special surprise, we have two guests today. We have Kyle A. Bear, best known for his roles as Sosuke Aizen on the hit anime Bleach, and of course Gohan from Dragon Ball Z. Additionally, we are going to be joined after the first break by best-selling author of the Jimi Hendrix biography Roomful of Mirrors and rock historian Charles R. Cross. Mr. Cross will be joining us for a deep dive of the lost Jimi Hendrix album Values of Neptune, to look in depth at the puzzle pieces of what could have been Jimi's fourth studio album, where we will spotlight the title track, Values of Neptune, of Neptune, a very underrated song that even many diehard Hendrix fans may have never heard of. And right before this break, you will get to hear the debut of our brand new segment in theaters now. I would also like to say congrats to our Wright State Raiders who just won the game against Bryant last night, and are now heading off to go play Arizona in San Diego tomorrow night. My friend and coworker from WHIO, Chris Collins, will be heading down to San Diego with them, and hopefully get in a lot more sleep than he would normally be on the morning show, as the Wright State Raiders continue to advance throughout the NCAA tournament. I wish them luck. We've got lots to get to, folks, and you can hear it right here on Wright State's number one stop for movies and classic rock, Reels and Riffs. Now let's get to my Big Three.
0: Here's Random's Big Three. Number one. I did what I had to do. You cannot control everything,
2: strange. You opened the doorway between universes. And we don't know who or what will walk through it.
1: Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness hits theaters May 6 What surprises do they have in store? And where do we think Sam Raimi is gonna go with the movie coming up? Number two. Summer of Soul, a concert film covering the Harlem Cultural Festival from 1969. Is this concert film an underrated gem and on the same level as Woodstock? My thoughts coming up. Number 3 And finally we'll be looking at The Valleys of Neptune, a lost track from the tail end of Jimi Hendrix's career. We will be joined by author Charles R. Cross to discuss where Jimmy's musical direction was going right before his untimely death. The answers to these stories and more are coming up. Our first story is a movie I've been wanting to talk about for a while, the much anticipated Marvel film Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Now I try to avoid covering superhero films too extensively on this show, but this film is definitely something to look forward to. Spider- man No Way Home, the Loki series, and WandaVision broke open the door to the Marvel multiverse. As I've said, exploring a potential movie multiverse is a great new storytelling device to shake up the usual Marvel movie formula. Spider- man No Way Home executed it so well that my fiancé, who doesn't even really like superhero films, was clapping when Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield showed back up in their iconic roles after years. This new film will once again star Benedict Cumberbatch returning as Doctor Strange following the events of Spider- man No Way Home and Loki, where a miscast spell results in a multiversal crisis, and he encounters many different versions of himself and other Marvel characters. Haley Olsen will be returning as the Scarlet Witch, following the events of WandaVision. It definitely seems like they're setting up Wanda, or a version of Wanda as the villain of this film. We also have Mordue returning from the first film as a villain, you'll you hear his voice on the trailer, and there are rumors that we'll have Kane the Conqueror make his first full appearance here. Oh, you don't know who that is? Well, if you saw the end of Loki, brief spoilers! If you remember the character played by John Majors from the Loki finale who turned out to be behind all the events of the series and then dragged the show to a screeching halt by literally having the two main characters sit in chairs while he explained for the whole episode what was actually going on. Loki and Sylvie was disconnected and confused, and the audience was disconnected and confused by that scene. Never have an episode where that happens. It's such a lazy way to convey exposition, and a very disappointing end to an otherwise great series. Well, that character from that Loki finale is a version of the frequent Avengers villain, Kane the Conqueror. He's a time-traveling human despot from the so-and-so century, who naturally dresses in purple and has purple face paint because the future! Despite the clunky way they introduced him, maybe he'll become a memorable villain for the MCU. Moving back to Doctor Strange, Doctor Strange has always been one of my favorite Marvel characters, long before the film, because he was one of my dad's favorite characters growing up, Yes, my dad was into these characters like Iron Man and Captain America long before they were A-list, got big-budget movies, and were cool. Benedict Cumberbatch was an excellent choice for portraying like, Stephen Strange and really giving him a distinct, memorable performance. He did a good job of bringing over that sardonic and deadpan sense of humor he honed from Sherlock, and I think it jives well with Doctor Strange. One of the things that I'm most excited for for this new film is the return of Sam Raimi to the director's chair. This is Sam Raimi's first time directing any kind of Marvel or even superhero film, since the mixed to poorly received Spider-Man 3 back in 2007. Most people, and especially horror movie fans, know Sam Raimi not just for the Spider-Man trilogy, but for the cult classic Evil Dead movies. Evil Dead 2 is one of my personal favorite horror films, and it's the best combination of horror and comedy that I've ever seen. One of the biggest trademarks of Sam Raimi's style are those quick, behind-the-back, fast-tracking shots, and his skill at using the camera to, like, really chase after the actors, among other things. He did a really good job of incorporating that camera work into his work on the Spider-Man trilogy, and was really the first director to make web-swinging across buildings look super exciting in live-action. If you ever saw the live-action Spider-Man show from the 70s, you'll know it's a big difference there. We really need more of these auteur filmmakers like Raimi or Taika Waititi from Thor Ragnarok to really add their own distinct flavor to the usual MCU formula. The title and some aspects of the most recent trailer gives me hope that we might see some horror elements added to the film. The title, Multiverse of Madness, of course, calls back to the Lovecraft story at the Mountains of Madness. And from the trailer, we've already seen some interest in horror potential with, like, Wanda and Zombie Strange. The Mirror World and various under- other concepts introduced in, like, the first Doctor Strange film have excellent, like, um, horror potential. Another point of interest that everybody is talking about, especially given that the MCU has dived fully into the multiverse, is how to introduce the X-Men and the Fantastic Four into the MCU. We may be getting that in this film. Of course, um, Disney bought the rights to Fox and the and the Fox Marvel films just a few years ago. In the trailer, we got what sounded like a sneak peek of Patrick Stewart returning as Professor Xavier. Patrick Seward is, like, coyly denying it, of course, and saying people have been doing impressions of my voice for years. But as we know from Andrew Garfield saying he wasn't in the last Spider-Man movie, we probably shouldn't take those comments too seriously. It would be interesting to see how they try to incorporate the X-Men movie universe into the wider MCU, or if they choose to reboot aspects of it before incorporating it. Something I'm more excited slash cautiously hopeful about are early reports of fan-favorite actor John Krasinski appearing as Mr. Fantastic, opening the door for a new Fantastic Four film. Krasinski is most well known for his performance in The Office, but films like The Quiet Place show that he has some versatility as an actor. If this film does lead to a new MCU Fantastic Four film, all we can hope for is that it's good and not another fan-four stick. Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness is in theaters May 6th. For a second story, I want spotlight a hidden gem for music fans that's hiding out on Disney+, and it's not Get Back. A massive concert the same year as Woodstock, but all but faded into the distant memories of the audience and those who performed. A concert with legends like Stevie Wonder, Sly and the Family Stones, it was actually Sly's birthday on Tuesday. Nina Simone, Gladys Knight, and the Pips, and more. And it would have stayed that way until a massive amount of film reels were fortunately found in a basement and were constructed into a full concert documentary. The film is called Summer of Soul, and it covers the Harlem Cultural Festival at Mount Morris Park, 69, starring some of the greatest black musicians of all time. One of the craziest parts about this documentary is how great it looks. It was filmed with high quality film cameras, and it looks like it was filmed yesterday. It's a very enjoyable concert film, and we're lucky to have access to it, especially given it was basically forgotten in a basement. It introduced me to several black artists that I hadn't heard of going in, and also Stevie Wonder was particularly fun in the film. This is actually pre-superstition Stevie, and he shows off his drumming skill. I didn't even know that Stevie was so good on drums. You can tell he's having a really good time, even if he can't see the audience. Summer of Soul does a really good job of contextualizing the Harlem Cultural Festival with both interviews with attendees and the musicians between the concert clips, letting you know why the event was so significant to them personally, interspersed with like personal testimonies and funny stories. For an event taking place the same year as Woodstock and with such a massive crowd, it left me wondering constantly, why was this forgotten over like its whole runtime. I think it will go down alongside other concert films for Woodstock and Monterey as a showcase of the music from that time. If you're a fan of music from this time period and have Disney Plus or happen to pick up the DVD, definitely check this film out, Summer of Soul. Now, before we go to our break, I present our newest segment, In Theaters Now. Welcome to In Theaters Now. This is the brand new segment of our show where we spotlight a movie that is in theaters now every week. And I'll tell you what we've heard, what critics are saying, and some of my or my guests' personal recommendations. First up, let's take a quick look at Uncharted, starring Spider-Man star Tom Holland and Mark Wahlberg. For those who don't know, the film is based on the Uncharted series of video games from Ubisoft. The games are an action-adventure series featuring the charismatic and roguish treasure hunter Nathan Drake in pursuit of various treasures and locations such as Shambhala and El Dorado. The Uncharted games are essentially a modern Indiana Jones series in tone, storyline and humor, Uncharted has the same kind of pulpy 1920s adventure serial film that really made the Indi- really made Indiana Jones so timeless. The games are already directed and stylized like Hollywood movies, so the film potential has been there since 2007. But cast in, the cast-in for the film is the biggest thing that really surprised me. Tom Holland is an excellent Spider-Man, and films like Cherry show he's capable, of more artsy Oscar contenders. But Nathan Drake is in his mid-30s, and if I ever thought about an Uncharted film, my first choice would be somebody like Nathan Fillion, or maybe even Ryan Reynolds. This film is definitely going for a younger Nathan Drake, and has Mark Wahlberg playing his older friend-slash-fodder figure from the game Sully, which isn't a terrible choice, but I could also see him as a decent Nathan Drake himself. I mean, it's weird because Tom Holland is my age, it's just a little bit strange. Apparently part of why the studio tapped Holland for the role is because he pitched a young James Bond movie to some studios a few years back with him in the star and role. Hearing that, the other pieces kind of start to fall into place. I wouldn't personally mind a young James Bond film. I'm not gonna write and I'm not gonna write off this uncharted film just because it stars Tom Holland as a younger Nathan Drake. Now, I haven't seen the film yet, but should you and should I? Let's take a look at what critics are saying and, audi- and audiences are saying so far. Uncharted has made $301 million at the box office so far, and Rotten Tomatoes currently has the film at a 41% for the critics' overall collective rating and a 90% for its audience rating. Now, it's important to remember what Rotten Tomatoes measures for these scores, because most people just think that they're an arbitrary rating from the website. The critic score is a cumulative score from the star ratings and general consensus of the reviews from multiple different professional critics. And the audience score is a similar situation where it's the cumulative score from reviews of, its, of Rotten Tomatoes' normal users. 40% is middle of the road, not necessarily great, but not terrible enough that people went in touch Uncharted with a six-foot pole. But the audience score is encouraging, and it's not very often you see such a big, like, that big of a disparity between critics and, like, the audience. Fundamentally, critics and audiences sometimes are looking for completely different things. Uncharted may be a case where the film is very enjoyable to watch, but it's not super innovative or, like, Oscar-worthy. I mean some of my favorite films fall into that category, disappointing critics but fan favorites like Big Trouble in Little China, or classic 80s action movies starring Stallone and Schwarzenegger. Films do not necessarily have to be traditionally good to be awesome, and this Uncharted film might fall into that category. I love the games, and I would personally say go check this new Uncharted movie out. When we return, we will be joined by acclaimed author of the Jimi Hendrix biography, Roomful of Mirrors, and music journalist Charles R. Cross to discuss the lost Hendrix album, Valleys of Neptune, what Hendrix was planning musically before his untimely death in 1970, and you'll get to hear our song of the week, right here on Reels and Riffs, back in a moment. You're listening to
0: Reels and Riffs on Wright State's one and only radio station, WWSU 106.9, Dayton's right choice. The only talk show powered entirely by name puns. It's Reels and Riffs with Random Allen on WWSU
1: 106.9, Dayton's right choice. Welcome back to Reels and Riffs, and on this day, March 17th, St. Patrick's Day, 55 years ago, the single Purple Haze was released in England. Getting right into our last story, for the first time this season, let's talk about the one and only voodoo child and electric alchemist, Jimi Hendrix.
3: You're considered
0: one of the best guitar players in the world. Um, (laughs) How about one of the
3: best sitting in this chair?
2: It was a shock. You know, just to, to see somebody like Hendrix, we were witnessing something really quite remarkable. We came backstage, and there was Jimmy, and, re- and he was really very already pretty freaky looking with big hair and a, all those Cossack jackets on and skin type jeans, but with these beautiful eyes and a beautiful voice, and just a one look at him and knew that there was something powerful going on.
0: But the way I write things, I just write him in with a the- clash between reality and fantasy, mostly. You have to use fantasy in order to uh, show different sides of reality. That's how it can bend, as the word reality is nothing but each individual's own way of thinking.
1: Jimi Hendrix, one of my all-time favorite guitarists, and truly one of the greatest electric guitar virtuosos of our time. Through feedback, bends, and pedals, Jimi pushed the electric guitar to its limits to create a distinctive tone and harmonies that were revolutionary both then and now. Over the course of his career, Jimi truly gained international fame for his hit singles Hey Joe and Purple Haze, and then solidified his place in rock history with three groundbreaking studio albums, The Jimi Hendrix Experience, Axis Bold as Love, and Electric Ladyland. Jimmy was in development of a fourth studio album before his untimely death at 27 years old on September 18th, 1970. Where was Jimmy going musically? What songs would Jimmy developing in for this new project? And who was he working with at the time? Well, my guest and I might have some answers to those questions and more. Joining us on the rock line is music journalist and best-selling author of the Jimi Hendrix biography Roomful of Mirrors, Charles R. Cross. How are you today? sir
3: i'm doing great always happy to talk about jimmy
1: so i was gonna ask because what you've um worked on projects about other like rock legends such as kurt cobain and led zeppelin what makes jimmy's story so unique to you personally compared to those other famous musicians
3: well to me uh jimmy's story is one of the quintessential stories of rock history because it also includes race uh which is a you know something that, that many of the other musicians you mentioned didn't you know, deal with the challenges that Jimmy had. Jimmy grew up black in a world where trying to create the kind of music he was hearing in his head it wasn't always possible, given strict parameters, both of racial divides and prejudice at times for him. So he had to recreate an entire new paradigm of, of who he was and, and what music could be. and and for that reason I find his story one of the most fascinating in all of rock.
1: Because he had to overcome that extra hurdle especially back then where a lot of black musicians weren't even able to really make money off of their own music.
3: Absolutely. Jimmy grew up in Seattle where I'm from so his story was also very important in that context and uh, he played his very first concert in the basement of a Jewish synagogue um, the, uh, the reality was that, that black musicians, even in Seattle, which was a more progressive city than many other places, there was still a, a, a race line for essentially where you could play as a black performer and get paid by the musicians union. You weren't allowed to play beyond this certain street and get paid if you were black, which is absurd. And uh, in Seattle, we have a giant museum it's now called the Mopop Museum. It was created by Paul Allen. Initially, he wanted to title it the Jimi Hendrix Museum, and it's filled with more Hendrix memorabilia than anywhere else in the world, including Jimi's Woodstock guitar. But the irony is that museum itself is situated two blocks into the white musician area. Jimi himself would not have been able to play at a museum named after himself in the era he was growing up and been paid um, so there's some great ironies in, in that. And uh, Jimmy changed a lot of that partially because of things he did and, and how, he, how he stuck to his guns in his career. Um, so I find the story very fascinating on many levels. It's a weird you know, situation that Jimmy kind of has to go so far away to, to eventually kind of come home. One of the crazier stories I found in researching the book is the musician Sting. He says that Jimmy is not only the first musician he ever saw in concert, Jimi Hendrix was also the first black man he ever saw in his life um, when he witnessed a concert when he was a kid. So that, that shows you the impact that Jimmy had on British musicians in the era
1: getting back to um I want to talk about the end of Hendrix's career reading the end of Roomful of mirrors and listening to some of the last interviews and hearing like Jimmy speak at Woodstock you definitely get some of the sense that Jimmy was experiencing some like burnout with his usual like Jimmy Hendrix experience style musically and on, on stage like some of his like um trademarks with like you know using the feedback and also like um like playing the guitar with his teeth and behind his back like his um usual style up until that point what ideals around this time was jimmy experimenting with musically and do we see a shift away from his traditional style
3: yeah i mean it it, we're of course speculating at this point because of jimmy's death in 1970 so we're doing the armchair quarterbacking when we start talking about what was he going to do next but but that's one of the most fascinating things in music to imagine a world where jimmy lived um a lot of my speculation comes from you know, things I've read in letters that he wrote, uh, what he wrote in diaries about what he thought about where his life was at the time. What, what certainly seems to be the case is that what you're describing is the idea of the rock-based experience, which was primarily driven by a, a stage show that people thought they wanted to see one thing out of Jimmy Foxy Lady, the guitar on fire, a smash guitar, these were all kind of motifs of Jimmy's live show, but he, he was tired of that. And um, Jimmy always had had so many musical influences that weren't necessarily uh, on stage. Um, what I think he most wanted to do, which is some of what we saw a little bit in Band of Gypsies, you know, he wanted to be a black artist playing black music, what he thought was that. And uh, he very much wanted to, to head an R&B band in an R&B band traditionally would have seven to nine players, not the three people of the experience, and there'd be a horn section. So we got a dose of that at Woodstock. Woodstock's about as close as he ever came to pulling that off, but it's, it's still not exactly an R&B band. And then we jumped to jazz. Jimmy was greatly influenced by jazz and had talked about playing. Uh, I think maybe my favorite story in my book is the time that Jimmy and Miles Davis jammed together. And uh, imagining that, uh, two musical geniuses, Jimmy and and Miles together, what they could have created, uh, that boggles our minds um, to imagine what would have come out of that. But one thing I think we can say for certain is that the way that Jimmy was producing pop rock records, that was essentially over for him creatively. Beyond that, it's all speculation on where he would have gone.
1: Do you think that um, him bringing on Billy Cox to replace Noel Redden kind of had an influence on this direction he was taking?
3: Well, Billy was uh, somebody who grew up with Jimmy. He was also black, whereas Noel was not. Um, What what was interesting is that Jimmy didn't immediately ax, you know, Mitch Mitchell. Um, Jimmy and Noel had had a difficult relationship where um, Noel actually was a guitar player and, and Took up bass uh, just accidentally. The first time he ever played bass, he told me was his audition for the Jimi Hendrix Experience. So I, I do think the idea of Jimmy wanting a band of uh, black players, and, and of course, by hooking up with uh, Buddy Miles, he, he suddenly had that when it was Buddy, Billy, and Jimmy, and and that was just an incredible band. That 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 might be the best band Jimmy was ever in. No offense to the the men and the experience but um, Band of Gypsies was in, in terms of a live performing group that was an incredible band um, so I, I think there was a lot in Jimmy's and Noel's relationship uh, but, but Jimmy wanted to play with everybody I mean there's a ridiculous story that's true on you know Electric Ladyland that Jimmy's on the way to the studio and decides to invite the guy that drove the taxi in to play on the record So that gives you an idea of how open Jimmy was to other people playing music with him. Uh, The idea of being in a group with two players, uh, that just didn't fit Jimmy's idea of music. Uh, Music was much more inclusive, community-based, and spontaneous than any individual band walking on stage for him.
1: And a lot more collaborative.
3: Absolutely. And though what's interesting is that even though it was collaborative, Jimmy was always the boss in all these sessions. I mean, Jimmy, over the course of his latter parts of his career, not only does he jam with Miles Davis, he plays with Stephen Stills early in his career. He invites a number of other, you know, fantastic players into Electric Ladyland who who jam with him at times. But Jimmy was always the boss in those situations. It is harder to imagine the idea of someone like him and Miles Davis on on stage on tour on record how could those two visions compete uh i'm not sure um that that's the part that that sort of suggests that whatever jimmy was doing in the future it was likely to be the Jimi hendrix show with other people contributing
1: i would almost kind of describe jimmy's approach as somewhat like kubrickian Like, especially on Electric Ladyland, given, like, how um, much he tried to strive for perfection with, like, his songs by, like, constantly refining them over, like, a huge amount of takes, in addition to bringing on so many more um, session players to play on the record, out of, like, the different, out of the tracks that um, came out following Electric Ladyland that were in consideration for the proposed fourth like studio album which one of those really stand out to you and like how do you think that they would have changed in development if you could make if you could take a guess
3: so it's hard to know how that would have actually worked out but creatively there are many many songs he cut um uh you know those last couple years of his life um that didn't quote unquote officially come out but But in the posthumous released record, uh, Valley of Neptunes, um, the song that stands out to me, which had been released a few more times at other times, is the song Hear My Train of Coming. Um, In my reference of Jimi Hendrix's song, that is like the second or third greatest song that he ever did. Uh, The song is interesting because it it did come out uh, in the movie experience, um, in an acoustic version, and I, and I actually prefer that to the studio version that that is on, um, you know, the, the posthumous record. But, but it's it's an incredible song. It's it's really to me the song that's kind of the link between the blues that Jimmy grew up with and what he wanted to do and the rock world. Um, I, I I think it's one of the greatest things he ever did. So if anybody hasn't heard that song, track down one of the many versions of it. Um, and uh it's just him at his finest absolute best in my opinion
1: i think Jimi hendrix's story really um especially the way you tell in a room full of mirrors is really interesting because it kind of, it starts off as kind of, um, you know, a kid who's, who's dreaming to be kind of, um, like a lot of his, a lot of the heroes he's hearing on records. It goes through a lot of hardship, finally achieves the dream. And ultimately it seems like he's kind of unsatisfied in like aspects, wants to go a different way and then like, like, um, dies before he truly got to explore everything he wanted to
3: well I think that's a great summation Um, you know I found this not only writing about Jimmy but writing about Kurt Cobain and and some of the other acts that I've written about even let's even take Led Zeppelin even though they end because of the death of John Bonham uh, many of these bands once they become the thing they want to become they are trapped in this one idea of what they are and uh, that that vision doesn't always fit very creative uh, in you know, intensely uh, ambitious artists that, that feel they can't, they want to move on from, from the way we believe they should be. And, and that's one of the struggles with many acts today that have to go on the road and only play their hits when they're writing new music that they would prefer to play for Hendrix, That was a form of death. And so it was quite a struggle for him to uh, do those last shows. Um, there's great video and there's concert footage of of Hendrix towards the end of his life. Um, you know, doing a number of different festivals and, uh, you know, you look at it and and he does not look good. Uh, you know, both physically, there's issues on drugs and there's issues. He's not, he's not alive on stage. He plays fantastic. Jimmy asleep, drugged out, um, you know, uh, playing with his other hand, broken guitar. He still was the best guitarist you'd ever could have imagined. And yet, he's not quite as alive on those last performances um, as he was earlier in his career. So um, I think he got what he wanted in terms of commercial success, but in the end, those things that people dream of, money, fame, success, do, don't always equal um, you know, feel, feeding that creative hunger, um, that creative hunger that drove Jimi Hendrix and I think drives all musical geniuses is a very delicate beast that that needs to be fed even after you're famous. And uh, for Hendrix, this this live record, Valleys of Neptune, and and a few of the other things that were released only give us a hint of where he was going to go. I I think he would have put out an incredible record if he lived another couple more years. But unfortunately, we have to live with the fact that he died in, in 1970, and it makes me sad every time I think about it, even talking about it now.
1: What we're almost out of time, but what do you think is the biggest lesson we can take away from Jimmy's story?
3: Well, the lesson I take away from his story is one that is is tremendously creatively um, inspiring. And that is, you had a guy here that was so poor that he played a broomstick pretending he was a guitar player. And he kind of imagined himself as a performer, and he stuck with that vision and and created that that is a very inspiring tune um that is a that is a story that that you know shows the power of the human spirit um to then do that to create that but then also to create this kind of work and to be such a groundbreaking artist and and ultimately i i doubt we will ever see a guitar player in the history of our lives that will be better than Jimi Hendrix. Um, to me, that I, I just still almost can't believe that. And you know, I spent four years writing this book and I've been a Hendrix fan for, for several decades of my life. Um, and uh, I still can't believe what he did. So there's a lot of inspiration to take from that. Jimi did not listen to barriers, he stepped over them. And I think there's something we all can get out of that.
1: I, I think that's a great note to end on. It's been a pleasure having you on the show, Mr. Cross, and that was all super informative. I, I hope to have you back on at some point.
3: You're welcome. I love talking about this stuff, and thanks for uh, such an intelligent, intelligent conversation.
1: That was Charles R. Cross, author of Roomful of Mirrors, one of the best biographies on Jimi Hendrix that I've ever read. Go buy it now. Now time for the Song of the Week. Here's Random Song of the Week. The song of the week this week is Jimi Hendrix's Valleys of Neptune, from the eponymous album of the same name. You probably haven't heard this track because it wasn't released until 2010, but decades it was one of the most sought after tracks from Hendrix's catalog right before his death. When we return to Reels and Riffs we'll be joined by Kyle A. Bear, voice actor and the voice of Gohan from Dragon Ball Z. You are listening to WWSU 106.9, Dame's Right Choice. This is Jimi Hendrix's Valleys of Neptune back in a moment.
0: Valley's number one spot for film talk and classic rock—it's Reels and Riffs with Random Allen.
1: Welcome back to Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. For our final segment, one-on-one, we are joined by a very special guest. He's a podcaster, former radio DJ, and award-winning voice actor of many of your childhood favorites. He has a massive list of credits to his name, such as Ryu from Street Fighter, Kiba Inuzuka from Naruto. Kamina from Gurren Lagon, Captain Sosuke Aizen on Bleach, and too many more memorable roles in both video games and anime to count. But he's probably best known for his role as the voice of the narrator and adult Gohan on the worldwide sensation Dragon Ball Z. Kyle A. Bear, everybody. How are you today, sir?
2: Hey, I'm doing great, sir. Thank you for having me.
1: So, when I was researching, I was surprised to find out that you were a radio DJ. Mm-hmm. And you started off your career in the industry, becoming like a radio DJ for your high school and your university, and then you ended up on radio of Disney as like like um, DJ Squeezy. And I was listening to some of your clips, and I can definitely tell you had a lot of fun with it. Why oh did my you? Gosh, yeah. Why did you want to become a radio DJ in the first place? And which qualities, in your opinion, carry over between DJ and voice acting?
2: Well, I tell you, since they're both related to audio only, so you're in a padded room in a mic and you're entertaining people, but if you're shy, have stage fright, you're introverted, you don't like the attention, but you still like making people laugh or have fun and all that, then these are the two careers, you know, and that fascinated both of those, fascinated me from childhood, learning about cartoons and learning that Mel Blanc voiced all these Looney Tunes characters and I said, "Ah, that's a job. I want to do that when I grow up. And I used to play pretend DJ with a cassette recorder and do mock commercials and introduce records, which are now again in the whole vinyl thing. But I was growing up in the 70s because I'm 51 now and grew up before the Internet. So I'm playing... Kiss Records and Queen and all this old school rock and and doing all that. And then I grow up, get an internship at a student radio station at uh, University of North Texas outside of Dallas in Denton, Texas. And I get a Bachelor of Arts degree in radio, TV, film. They lump those three together. And I got an internship at a radio network, which uh, eventually turned into a part-time job to a full-time job, everything from top 40 to Kids' radio with Radio Disney. I did heavy metal stuff. It's so wild. And then while I was at Radio Disney, I heard about auditions at Funimation back in 2000 and went in, and my voice career started then.
1: I was going to talk about. Um, so you've always had an interest in voice acting, like uh, mm-hmm. since you were like young. You always kind of were like, I wanted to get into this.
2: A lot of voice actors say they just kind of fell into it or they didn't seek it out per se, you know, they started different way. A lot of them come from this stage. I didn't, I was too, too, uh, too shy. I didn't get involved with uh, the drama classes in school. If I could go back, I totally would because in working in radio and working in voiceover has given me confidence. So now, yeah, I, I have no problem addressing the public at a, at a panel at a con or uh, hosting events or, or, or whatnot. So yeah, you know, uh, hindsight's 2020. 20. If I could go back, I'd do it all again. But um, yeah, that that fascination with uh, the theater, the mind, learning about uh, uh, creating characters with your voice, and melding that with the artistry of the animators, and and just being a piece of the pie to deliver something so entertaining and 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 touching so many people's childhoods, which of course impacts their life, and it did to me. And geeking out about all this stuff and then getting to work in that industry is like, man, it's like double icing on the cake.
1: I was going to talk about Dragon Ball specifically. Had you heard about dra- like how popular Dragon Ball was going in when you signed on to the series? And like at what point did you become a fan of it?
2: I was a fan when it started airing in the United States before Toonami, the first run of Toonami. So it would air on independent stations on the weekend at like 4 a.m. or something ridiculous. And back then everyone had VCRs. And my VCR always flashed 12 because I never learned how to set (laughs) and and set the timer and and record it. But I did. So Dragon Ball Z, I have to thank for that, heard about it in a magazine that no longer exists called *An America*. And it talked about this series, how, you know, these, these, these characters, you know, the, the main Goku starts as a kid, and then he grows up, he gets married, and he has a son, and then the son grows up, and blah, 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 other words, repeat. And this was different than the, the Simpsons, or different than Charlie Brown, you know, where, where people are just ageless. This was a little more grounded in reality in that sense, where, where people would start young and then grow up, and you see them literally evolve over time. And, uh, I became a fan. I was hooked. Uh, the first thing I saw was like Piccolo, uh, getting his arm blasted off oh, or something wow. ridiculous. And, uh, I used to go around imitating the narrator, Doc Harris. This is from the Canadian English dub. The first two sagas, uh, Saiyan and Namek Saga would air over and over again because that's all they had the rights to at the time. And then, uh... Funimation moved their operations to Texas and Chris Sabat. It was the Chris Sabat show for a while, a lot of that third season. Uh, But eventually I inhabited a couple of his roles. So, you know, getting to do um, Ox King eventually and everything. But, yeah, it all started as a fan. And then I'm breaking into a career I've always wanted on a show that I'm already a fan of. So it's like you couldn't peel me off the ceiling. I was just so high on life. I was so excited to be able to to have something that would literally affect uh, the course trajectory of of my career path and, and everything.
1: That's really cool to hear, because a lot of the other voice actors I've talked to when they came into their projects that they're like most famous for, like they hadn't like heard of the show coming into it. They like really didn't watch it. They like didn't know about the property. But it's really cool to hear that you were like a fan going in.
2: Yeah, and Dragon Ball Z has a, a change from me going to conventions as a fan to becoming a guest at conventions, and and I had seen kids wear the the Naruto headbands five years before Naruto was uh, was beginning to be dubbed. Also in that same year of two thousand five, I moved to Los Angeles and uh, I was trying to get established there. I'd left the full time comforts of a, of a job in radio. I left insurance and all my friends and family. So this was a new chapter in my life where it was the scariest thing I had done. I was just starting over. I think I was 38 back then or something. And I got out here to the West Coast because I want to voice cartoons. And I've been doing this with a career of anime and video games and I wouldn't change it for the world. But the most fun is to 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 uh, be in a room with the whole cast, and, and lay down a cartoon voice track that they then animated to, whereas anime has the the animation done first, and then even the Japanese, they dub their own shows post-production. So it's, uh, it's a very different experience for different things, but video games and, and anime, we go in solo, one actor at a time, we're matching lip sync or... The timing of the Japanese audio or whatever the audio is from nowadays, Netflix live action dubs from all countries around the world are getting picked up and licensed for dubs. So you'll hear a lot of anime people on Netflix dubs
1: now, too. Yeah, they got kind of overlaps. Oh, yeah. 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 When Funimation hired you on and, like, um, you know, hired you on as the narrator voice, was there an initial push for you to sound like Doc Harris from the Ocean Dub? Or did they say, you know, kind of do what you want with this?
2: They actually, at the time, they had a Texas version of Doc Harris. His name was Dale Kelly. And I was cast as Team Gohan first, starting at, you know, Orange Star High and all that. I'd done some bit part voices after the Cell Saga wrapped up, but... Gohan was my first big part. And then a few months later, Dale Kelly left. I forget why. And they said, hey, we heard your demo and we think you could do this. And I was like, oh my God, another dream come true. I used to go around imitating Doc Harris. And it says, well, okay, uh, what we're going to have you do is try to imitate Dale Kelly as close as possible. And then, of course, over time, it just kind of becomes your own. Yeah. So my early episodes, if you watch it, my narrator sounds a little different. Of course, everyone's character sounds a little different. Vegeta is vastly different. You go back to watch those early Chris Abbott episodes versus Kai or now with with uh, the games and such. And Super. Were, I don't know
1: you guys
2: are. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the things evolve over time. So uh, at first they said make it as close as possible. And then the, it just kind of became what it what it was, which is my own version of a monster truck tractor pull, but definitely inspired by the great Doc Harris up in Canada.
1: What are some of your personal favorite Gohan moments to voice in the Dragon Ball like franchise? Because you've voiced Gohan for I think it's going on almost twenty years now. And like Definitely, why were those important yeah. like why were those moments important to you?
2: I remember a moment during the other world tournament saga where he turns Super Saiyan two and his eyes roll back in his head and the hair's blonde and he's like screaming for this first time as a teenager on the show anyway. And it was just so cool to get to scream that. Yeah, I was a little lightheaded afterwards, but I got to do that. And then I got to redo it years later on the Kai dub, which trimmed the filler out. And a lot of people prefer the original Z, but I, I say the acting has come such a long way on Kai. If you watch that dub, our script is a lot closer to the Japanese script, which was also a new script. They, uh, they adapted that script differently than the original Z back in the day And everyone is just all that more seasoned and experienced that, that we could almost direct ourselves with all those roles But uh, another great moment uh, I love the whole Saiyan saga a, a lot of fans, it's controversial They kind of think yeah. he's like Jar Jar Binks from Star Wars It's like, oh, he's just annoying, this is just filler It's like, come on, Gohan It's like, oh, I had a blast I gotta put on this, this mock superhero voice And, you know Justice kick and justice punch and you know and then he tries to rap. I remember doing the rap. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, like uh huh, weed out the bad and it got the good. And then Chris Evans says, no, 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 that's too good. You need to white it up, make it more white. Make it, make, <laughs> 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 Maybe they wouldn't say that nowadays, but <laughs> it's like no, no, no. He he he's not hip at all. He can't. He has no sense of rhythm. It's just bad.
1: It's we just want bad. it to be
2: awkward. It's like oh okay, I could do that. <laughs> But, yeah, anytime Gohan, um, golly, uh, when he fights with Boo, not, not the not the absorption stuff, but, you know, like, fight you? No, I want to kill you. That's such an iconic moment uh, for adult Gohan. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I hope that whenever it comes back, because it's just a question of, you know, I don't know, you know. Oh, and why yeah, would when it Super not? comes back. It's so yeah. popular. That Gohan have, uh, have something to do. Unlike in the Broly movie, I'm going to get on my soapbox, where is Gohan? How come no one even mentions his name in the Broly
1: movie? I don't understand. And I'm kind of surprised that they don't have Gohan be more of a like a presence at all because I know they kind of sidelined him at the very first part of Super.
2: Yeah, they did, and then they brought him in, and he showed he, he showed he has potential. And it's like, let's unlock Gohan's potential because let's make Gohan great again. My gosh, he's been he's been thrown to the side. It's like I feel like I want to go into Akira Toriyama's head and just plant a seed. It's like, come on. Give Gohan his true moment. Don't let it be, oh, the pinnacle of Gohan's life is as a kid defeating Cell. I get that. That's iconic and great. But what if he could do something even better?
1: Exactly. As opposed to just going to a conference. Sorry, guys. I got to go to a conference.
2: Yeah, it's like, okay, I get it. He's a better husband. He's a better dad. Okay, good. Good. Good role model. Now, can we please show how awesome he is fighting?
1: (laughs) We definitely need to get a um, some kind of petition to send to Toriyama, like every fan, including with your name at the top of the list, to be like, we need more awesome Gohan stuff.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I go back and forth between wanting to petition it because if it happened, then it's only happening because we wanted it, and it wasn't the yeah. artist drive, which I think feels more fulfilling. You know, if they, it's their own choice to. Choose for Gohan to do something awesome that, you know, that's a reward right there. Whereas otherwise, if they actually took every one of our uh, things, it just becomes fanfic, right? It just becomes like, you know, what is this? It's like, this is, this is what, you know, Star Wars can become. If you're not careful, it becomes a committee and everyone saying, okay, well, we're going to rewrite this and retcon that because the fans didn't like this. And ah, it becomes a mess.
1: And just makes it makes the final product worse in the end. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And but thank God for uh, social media, where people get that instant live pulse feedback. It's like, all right, I like this, I like this direction, and all that. Like, you know, again with the Star Wars universe, I think the Mandalorian is the most Star Wars ish Star Wars thing that we've had since the original trilogy. And I enjoyed the new films just fine and everything, but. This really nailed it. John Favreau, Dave Filoni, and uh, the team at Lucasfilm have just, like, knocked it out of the park.
1: I Only IMDb says this, so, like, I need to double-check this fact with you, but it says you have, like, a big Boba Fett tattoo on your back?
2: I do, yes. I got this back in 97 when the Star Wars Special Edition debuted in theaters. I've always loved Boba Fett, but honestly, if I could go back, you know... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's like we've seen different people talk about how he looks cool, but what did, what did he really do? It's like, well, hopefully we'll find out on the Mandalorian or something, but the Mandalorian himself, man, it's <laughs> you so see cool. what Mandalorians are capable of. And it's like, it's not just flying around in a jetpack. It's like all oh, the cool
1: little Batman toys and, and everything. It's like, ah, oh, yeah. I think that's a good note to end on. Do you that's our show folks. Thank you so much for coming on, Kyle. It's been sure. like amazing. Do you, two you. two um last things. Do you have any plugs you would like to make and do you have any words you'd like to say to your fans listening?
2: I want to say thanks to the fans for supporting anime, manga, pop culture, entertainment, video games. Um, the people that get to work on it are very, very blessed to do what we do and we get to do what we do because you people support it through your, through your purchases, through coming to conventions, through going to online panels, through, through interaction on social media. And you can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Kyle bear Kyle is K-Y-L-E-H-E-B-E-R-T and my Twitch channel. I broadcast. Uh, I stream games terribly because I'm a button masher. Hmm. I'm a horrible gamer, but I have fun interacting with fans and everything on Twitch three times a week on Sundays, Tuesdays, Thursdays at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific. And uh, really, that's it.
1: Go follow him, folks. It's been great having you on, Kyle. And everybody Go had on a great Go Gohan with night. your
2: own bad self. I'm sorry. The Twitch channel is
1: called Gohan with your own bad self. Gohan with your own bad self. That's pretty good. <laughs> Thank you. That was Kyle A. Bear, professional radio DJ and the voice of Gohan from Dragon Ball Z. A big thank you to Kyle and Mr. Cross for guest starring on this episode. When we come back next week, we'll be joined live in studio by my friend and HEMA instructor, Frank Zamri to talk about Lord of the Rings and more. You've been listening to Reels and Riffs on WWSU 106.9, Dane's Right Choice. See you next week.
0: This has been Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. If you missed an episode, tune into Reels and Riffs on Spotify. Follow Reels and Riffs on Instagram and Facebook. See you next week on Wright State's one and only radio station, WWSU 106.9 FM, Dayton's right choice.